Business and Buckets, episode 80, coming right at you. The big eight zero. I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, we're already cranking through episode 80. Love to see it. Big sports show coming up for you. We'll review a couple of mock drafts. I'll give you guys my thoughts and feedback. NBA playoffs and plenty, plenty of UFC and MMA action. But before we talk sports, let's talk the one and only sponsor here at Business and Buckets, Fueled Supplements. So if it's not broken, why fix it? That's the inspiration behind Fueled Supplements' newest product, Creatine Monohydrate. So why take creatine? Well, creatine monohydrate is one of the most well-researched and effective natural supplements available for increasing muscle performance. Creatine enhances performance by supplying a pool of ATP, which acts as the muscle tissue's primary energy source for fuel during explosive bursts of energy, power, and strength. It comes in 100 servings, non-GMO, gluten-free, safe, and effective. You guys know the deal. Use my promotion code BUCKETS for a discount at fueledsupplements.com. You get 15% off with promotion code BUCKETS, B-U-C-K-E-T-S. Now, we're going to jump right into the MMA action as we had another fight night card this past week and another fight card in store for this weekend as we get closer to a big pay-per-view to kick off May on Cinco de Mayo weekend. Uh, but first off, Uriah Hall versus Andre Muniz. This will be happening on July 2nd. I'll be there for the Dirty 30 in Las Vegas. Uh, that's going to be a banger. You, you can't, you know... You, you can't not watch your high, Uriah Hall in the Octagon ever since the Ultimate Fighter. He's been must-see TV. Uh, on the heels of Ben Rothwell uh, being released from the UFC, he has signed with Bare Knuckle uh, Boxing, uh, BKFC. And then um, Cub Swanson officially introduced into the MMA Hall of Fame, UFC Hall of Fame. You know, awesome career to Mr. Cub Swanson, a guy that I've really enjoyed fighting, still fighting at a high level. We also have Saeed Nurmagomedov versus Douglas Silva de Andrade. And Saeed has really shown out lately. Um, you know, the Nurmagomedovs, they do what they do. Everyone wants to see how high, uh, you know, the, the ceiling is on a guy like this and what he's really capable of. Uh, so another fight for his resume coming up. Outside of UFC action, um, Tyson Fury had the fight earlier Saturday as it was taking place in the UK in Wembley and, uh, it was a sold out record breaking crew and it was really a show and it, the show was a lot better than the actual fight. In my opinion, I mean, Fury landed a nasty uppercut in round six that just shut the lights off. You know, he got away with the little shove. Dillian is saying that he got with the shove. He hit whiplash on the, 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 uh, on the canvas, but, uh, yeah, that cup uppercut definitely landed, and it was uh, you know, it was bound to happen. No offense to Dillian White, uh, but what a sight Wembley was! What a what a taste of music Fury has. Everything that he comes out to, you gotta love it. What he's chanting after the fights. I mean, this guy is definitely his own, you know, his own brand, his own self, and you love to see it. I really enjoy it as a, you know, as a spectator. And with that. Francis Ngannou enters the octagon and said, we will find out who the baddest motherfucker is. Uh, potential fight with him and Tyson Fury. He's saying that it has to be part of his uh, ongoing negotiations with the UFC as he is slated to be healthy towards the end of the year. 
And Bellator Cyborg beating Arlene Blanco in the rematch. Uh, they had fought earlier in their careers. She gets the dub in the Bellator card. Um, only real fight of interest to me. Um, but before we talk about this weekend's fight night, I did watch the Gilbert Burns Kamzat fight and the Aljo Pewter Yan. I was about to rewatch the fights from this weekend or watch them for the first time as I didn't catch them live. I had some birthday parties this weekend. And um, they were showing the, the, the this card live on uh, ESPN Plus, the replay. And I think I started right at the end of the McKenzie Dern fight, so it's perfect timing. And I thought Gilbert's fight was so close, paper thin, as I had thought. You know, I actually thought watching it real time, again, I was a little buzzed, had a little fun, was at a bar for MMA with some friends. I was in Portland on a little trip for the weekend. And I thought it was closer than I even th I thought the original time when I rewatched it. Uh, I do believe Kamzat did win, although I thought Gilbert did land the bigger shots and had some bigger moments. Uh, but credit Kamzat's ability to take a fucking shot, my man. Uh, we already talked about that when we broke down that card, but holy shit, uh, he could take some shots. And then the Aljo fight, I'm actually more shocked that uh, Pewter wasted time with all the grappling throughout the fight. And I do now, after watching it, agree with the Aljo decision. Let's say round one is a draw. It's literally as close as it could get, in my opinion. Aljo had the dominating performances. He dominated in three and four. I think he gassed out rounds four and five, and Pewter took it to him. Uh, but three and four were a lot more dominant than four and five. Regardless, debatably, there's a 10-8. But, you know, you give Aljo uh, round one. Um, I just don't see Pewter did nothing to really win that fight. Aljo had the ground control. Yeah. Pewter was on top of Aljo a little bit around th uh, four and five, but I don't think he really cared and knew that he had the fight in his hands. Um, watching that originally, for some reason, I thought Pewter had a lot bigger moments and was controlling that fight, but watching it sober the second time around, that definitely was the case. I, I thought Pewter should have stuck to the striking in rounds four and five and not try to grapple with Aljo as it really just wasted time and didn't give them enough on the scorecards to get the job done. But enough of that nonsense. I just wanted to rewatch it, give me my true thoughts, because I know there was some controversies, especially in the Aljo fight. And originally, I thought Pewter had won, but that definitely wasn't the case. Um, so, all, you know, all respect to Aljo. Everyone wants to talk shit on him still, but I'm still going with TJ Dillashoff. That is the fight that ends up getting books. TJ Killashaw, um, he called him Needle Shaw and whatever Shaw. But uh, this weekend I went four and two in my picks uh, for the fights that we had broke down, and then the uh, Chase Sherman fight actually was moved from this week to the next week because it was a short notice fight, so it actually didn't happen on this card. Uh, so we'll save that breakdown previewing um, the fights this weekend. But starting in the prelims. We had Felipe Linz with the unanimous decision over Marcin Prochnio. I had actually picked Prochnio early here on the prelims. And a lot of it had to do with, I didn't think Felipe would come in at his best shape of his career in light heavyweight looking the way that he did. But this was a very close fight through all three rounds. I was surprised at the physique of Felipe. I mean, he looked better than I think I've ever seen him. I never watched him in the PFL. I, I started watching him right after the PFL. So if there was ways to watch that footage, I'm not sure how, um, you know, maybe he was, you know, looking better then, but 
Um, to prior fights in the UFC, he looks sharp. You could tell he knew that he needed to start getting some some traction uh, to stick with the UFC. And you could really see that he, he, I think he feels like he could succeed in the light heavyweight uh, division. And he beat a very good Marcin Procneo. And in a different battle than you would think. With such an even battle through rounds two and three, I thought they were both pretty damn gassed in round three. Um, But I I thought round three became a must win. Whoever wins round three would take the fight. And Felipe was just taking Marcin down which for a big guy is a guy that does not get taken down very often. But Linz isn't a guy that's usually taking people down either. So uh, his coaches must have saw a game plan, saw some openings, stuck to the game plan, executed, got the job done, and he got himself a win. But this is not how, you know, you look at these two guys coming in, you would not think that would be the case. You'd probably think that someone would get knocked out in a fury of strikes. Statistically, Felipe landed 96 total and 64 significant strikes with four takedowns. He did have 11 attempts, which for a light heavyweight to have 11 attempts, especially in that kind of a fight, is straight savagery. Um, Some of those, he was just kind of leaning on him in the takedowns, but uh, Marcin had 116 total and 74 significant strikes. Now, Felipe lands uh, or starts a new winning streak after returning to light heavyweight while Marcin starts a new losing streak after a two uh, two wins in a row. So next, I could see Linz take on Khalil Roundtree or Michael Oleg-Zhuk. And for Marcin, I would like to see him take on Alonzo Menefield. Either way, these guys will be bangers. Light heavyweight isn't the deepest of classes, um, but, uh, you know, there's always bangers. I mean, any of these guys that I, I just talked about, you know, they usually throw down. And then wrapping up in the prelims, we had Tyson Pedro with the first round TKO over Ike Villanueva. And this really wasn't much of a fight, you know. Obviously, Tyson had been out for quite a while. Ike is a vet that's that's kind of on a downhill slide. Uh, but right away, there was a couple back-to-back groin shots, so it, it paused the fight. It was kind of a weird start. Not a lot of momentum. Um but Pedro was just landing huge leg kicks, and it only took three or four to immobilize Villanueva. I'm not sure if that was from the last fight, some impacting things, or, you know, they were clean shots. Tyson's got power, don't get me wrong, but usually it takes more than three or four clean shots to just immobilize a fighter like that. Um, statistically, it only took Tyson 22 total and significant strikes. Ike only landed four total and significant So Tyson gets his first win since February of 2018. Could you imagine February 2018, 1920, 21, 22, four years almost on the dot since you got a win. You're in a career, you know, you're not able to do something. You take some losses. Um, Shows that he truly fought through some things and uh, must truly love the sport to keep continuing. Um, because he was a high, high spoken prospect, you know, training at a city kickbox with all the guys they blew up and he just had all these issues. Um, but Ike now suffers his third loss in a row. I don't think he looks very competitive and I think would be on, you know, the side of potentially getting cut from the UFC, but I don't know what his contract situation is and the benefit for him as light heavyweight is very slim when it comes to depth. So what's next? For Tyson, I would love to see him take on Jim Crew, put him right in the fire, see what he can do, see if he can, um, you know, end up being the fighter that we thought he would, you know, back in like 2016. 
or maybe even Johnny Walker. You know, he's on a slide. He was a big time prospect as well. Those would be fucking bangers. Um, and for Ike, if he does continue to fight, give him Alexa Kamor, who's towards the back half of the light heavyweight rankings. Moving into the main card, Charles Jordan with a first round submission via guillotine over Lando Venata. And this was a fight that, you know, it's kicking off the main card, had high expectations, and it started hot. There was big shots. Both guys came out firing. But somehow Charles locked in a one-arm guillotine and got Lando to choke out. Uh, you could tell, obviously, it was very deep. He was he was just rocking it in. Uh, ended up getting the tap. So um, only a, uh, one round in this fight. Charles landed only five total and four significant. Lando had eight total and significant with the takedown which led to the guillotine. Uh, so not a lot of action as the guillotine came in pretty quick. Charles, though, that's you know huge win. Get, get through Lando early. He's got some momentum. He's on a two-fight winning streak. While Lando starts a new losing streak and is one win, two losses in his last three fights. So after an impressive finish for Charles, I think it would be great for him to fight Pat Sabatini, who literally just won. Orlando, uh, and for Lando, he could take on Bill Algeo, uh, but both guys still solid fighters. Great, great win for Mr. Charles. On the women's side of things, we had Macy Barber with a unanimous decision over Montana De La Rosa, and majority of this fight was just kind of like that dirty boxing in the clinch up against the cage. It was a very close fight. I thought Montana fought a closer fight than most people expected. Uh, but Macy was able to have some very good, you know, just simple stuff like wrist control that allowed her to land some big shots in the clinch. If you're some a somehow able to just stronghold someone, hold that hand, and they only have one hand or they're up against the cage and can't defend themselves, that leaves some openings for some big-time shots. Macy took advantage. Um, statistically, Montana landed 41 total and 14 significant strikes with a takedown and reversal compared to Macy's 80 total and 50 significant. So quite a bit of difference there in shots landed. Clearly a unanimous decision. Um, and she had a takedown and reversal of herself. Now Macy's on a two-fight winning streak. Montana starts a new losing streak. You know, Macy is a very hot prospect at one time. They kind of threw her in the deep end pretty early. She couldn't quite handle it. Just had to work her way back, uh, back into the mix. And she's still very young, but I would love to see her take on JoJo Wood, who's on a little bit of a slide. I think that's the fight to make. And for Montana, how about Maria Agapova, who just suffered a loss as well? Either way, both girls are really young. They'll be in this division, you know, battling, cracking necks for quite a while. And then this fucking fight. Holy shit. We had Claudio Puez with a first-round submission over Clay Guida. This is one of the other fights I got wrong. The last fight, I picked the young guy. Clay just keeps looking great in his 40s. But in this fight, Clay didn't get much of a chance as he was working with a true submission artist. And this whole fight, and the, well, the whole first round, was Guida fight, fighting out of submission attempts. This guy was all over a man. And uh, some very deep attempts. The first attempt, I was surprised he got out of it. And um, the transition ability, just how smooth Claudio is on the bottom, Finally going into a smooth transition into a knee bar. Like right as the legs extended, he went full force into a knee bar. And obviously it was deep real quick. Uh, Clay had a tap. Um, but now he has four finishes in a row all via submission. And 
to be honest, uh, from a guy that I didn't know a lot about, the transitions were some of the slickest I've ever seen, and the broadcast booth was giving him a lot of hot, a lot of high praise in that fight. Um, statistically, Clay landed only four total and three significant strikes. Claudio only had eleven total and one significant, um, but had five submission attempts and were was really deep in a couple of them. So Clay now starts a losing streak. He is one and two in his last three, and Claudio is on a five fight winning streak. Uh, four finishes in a row. He is mobbing up the rankings. Uh, so for him, I'd love to see him take on Jim Miller. Um, while Clay could take on Nasrat Haparist, I've talked about him, you know, against many of guys, but it's a guy that had been up and sliding down. Lots of good fights to have in this division. And then the main event. Um, not quite the way I thought this fight would go either. I did assume Jessica Andrade would get through pretty quickly. Uh, but she had a first-round submission over Amanda Lemos. And as Amanda's a big-time striker, we've seen Jessica Andrade come in throwing bombs. I figured this would be more of a striking battle. But Jessica Andrade actually respected Amanda just about as much as anybody I've seen since maybe Valentina, uh, which is big props to her. Um, but she was able to lock, lock in a standing head and arm triangle literally out of nowhere, put her up to the cage, locked it tight, didn't give it up, and she even said in the post-fight press conference that she had been practicing that. Her coach said it would be open. Uh, bravo to her coach for finding that. That's amazing. This is the first ever standing head and arm triangle in UFC history, the first ever finish. So Jessica Andrade, performance of the night, fight night bonus, and she keeps moving up. Straw weight, fly weight, it don't matter. Um, again, pretty early, uh, not a lot of striking here. Jessica landed three total and significant compared to Lemos's seven total and significant. So now Andrade is on a two fight winning streak after literally battling the gauntlet of women. Um, and Amanda is, on, uh, has her five fight winning streak come to an end and she starts a new losing streak. So Jessica up next, you know, if she is still fighting in straw weight, I would love to see her take on Marina Rodriguez. Or if it is the flyweight class, how about Alexa Grasso? All strikers must see TV. But maybe she'll know their strikers. Just put them in a standing, standing head and arm triangle. Who knows? And for Amanda, how about Kanaka Murata, who just suffered a loss as well? To be honest, not the best of cards, but there was a pretty good amount of fights, right? Some pretty evenly matched fights. Uh, they just all finished pretty early, which... You know, I guess as a fight fan, a lot of people want finishes, so they must have liked it. But this weekend, we have another fight night card with the 4 p.m. main card Pacific start, so a little bit earlier this Saturday. And starting in the prelims, we have Francisco Sniper Figueredo, 32-year-old fighter with a 12-4-1 record. He's taking on Daniel Miojo Lacerda, who's only 25 and and has 11-2 record. So this is a fight of, uh, of fighters getting their feet wet in the flyweight division. Although Francisco is 32, he hasn't been in the UFC for a long time. Daniel's only 25. Um, but I believe these are guys that will make a splash in this division. Daniel lost his first UFC fight against Jeff Molina, which was only his second professional loss of his young career. But six of his 11 wins are via submission, and five of them are via knockout. Francisco, meanwhile, is coming off a loss versus Malcolm Gordon and is 1-1 one one in the UFC, which was all in 2021. And seven of his 12 wins are via submission. You know, this is true Brazilians. It's a battle of Brazil. 
Two guys that are well-rounded and should be a fun prelim fight. It's the only fight we'll be taking in the prelims. I am going to take Francisco. He bit me last time, but I'm sticking with him. But I am avoiding him from a parlay if 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 possible, we'll say. So jumping into the main card, what a fight this is going to be. Christoph Jotko, 32 years old with a 23-5 and record, taking on Gerald GM3 Mearshart who's 34 with a 34 and 13 record. I mean, these guys are some, you know, some steady vets in the UFC. And uh, what a fight to start the main card. Two veterans in their prime, 32, 34. When we look at Kristoff, he trains out of American top team. He is a brown belt in BJJ. And he's on a one fight winning streak and is one and one in the UFC. And six of his 23 wins are via knockout. Meanwhile, I'm sure most UFC fans that are tuning in know of Gerald. Uh, he has a background in BJJ, kickboxing, and taekwondo. He has a black belt in Rofu Sport Kickboxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's on a three-fight winning streak. 26 of his 34 wins are via submission. And 8 of his 14 losses are via submission. To submit or be submitted. Now, this is a very close mat, uh, matched fight. I am going to take the younger fighter in this one. I am going to take Jotko. I am going to avoid him in parlays if possible as well, as these are some pretty evenly matched fights. I know I said that about the last card, but it is. Another evenly matched fight, we have Jared Flash Gordon, 33 years old with an 18-4 and record, taking on Grant KGD Dawson, who's 28 years old with a 17-1-1 record. And this is just another evenly matched fight that will be a fun one, but this time it's in the lightweight division. Um, Jared has a background in wrestling, boxing, and BJJ. He trains out of Sanford MMA. He has a brown belt in BJJ, and he's on a three-fight winning streak. Six of his 18 wins are via knockout, and four of his four losses are via knockout. So, yeah. Pretty much knock knock someone out, or he, you know, if he's going to lose, it's going to be via knockout. Grant trains. Uh, Grant um, has a brown belt in BJJ. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on an eight fight winning streak, with his last fight being a draw, and he has a four inch reach advantage in this fight. Now, eleven of his seventeen wins are via submission. So, a knockout fighter, a submission fighter. This will be fun. And Grant, you know, he's young. He's only 28, not even in his prime yet. But he is a hot prospect. He's on a roll. But Jared's in his prime. And he's coming off a very impressive win, in my opinion, versus Joe Selecki. Um, and he had fought some stiff competition, including Charles Oliveira. So due to that, I am taking Jared. But again, close, close fights here. If you can avoid it out of the parlay, I will, if possible. Moving on, we have Andre Touchy Feely, 31 years old with a 21 and 8 record, taking on Joe Anderson Tabarau Brio, 27 years old with a 12-3 and 1 record. Now, Andre fights out of Team Alpha Male. He had a tough go lately with a no contest against Daniel Pineda last summer. Uh, it was an accidental eye poke and a loss uh, previous to that to a very tough undefeated Bryce Mitchell. And he hasn't won since June of 2020, so he's definitely probably fiending the, the, 
the energy of getting a W, and nine of his 21 wins are via knockout. Meanwhile, Brito, he's a Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 0-1 in the UFC. He was on an, uh, an impressive 11-fight winning streak before entering the UFC, and six of his 12 wins are via submission, and four of them are via knockout. Now, I believe that Andre is ready to rock and roll, get that momentum, get that energy back, get a W on his record, especially after chilling the past few years and having a no contest, which was on its way to be a very good fight. Um, and I believe he's very talented. He's fought very good competition, so he should be able to add to the highlight reel in this one. I'm taking Andre. We putting him on that parlay. We marking him down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. Another kind of you know short notice fill-in. We have Andre the Pitbull Orlovsky, 43 years old with a 33 and 20 record, taking on Jake the Prototype Collier, who's 33 years old with a 13 and 6 record. Now the Pitbull is taking this fight on short notice after beating Jared Vandera in February. He said, "Hey, I, you know, later in my career, let's keep these wins a coming." And he's been very actively active recently, over 40 years old. You know, I think a win here would, you know, bless him an opportunity to get in the rankings and fight the ranked opponents moving forward, if that's something he wants to do. Now, I'll go break down Andre. You know, we could talk about his accolades for hours, and I feel like I'm breaking him down all the time because he is so active. Uh, but he trains out of American Top Team. He's an international master of sport and sambo. A legit UFC legend who has fought in World Series of Fighting, 1FC, Strike Force, Elite XC, Affliction, M1, you name it. He's a future Hall of Famer. And he has the most wins and fights in UFC heavyweight history. He's a former heavyweight champion and again accolades for days. 17 of his 33 wins are via knockout. 11 of his 20 losses are via knockout. And he is coming into this on a three-fight winning streak. Meanwhile, Jake is on a one-fight winning streak. He is 2-1 in his last three fights. And five of his 13 wins are via knockout. And three of his six losses are via knockout. Now, I believe Andre is too smart, too smooth, and experienced here. He's going to get the finish. We're putting him on the parlay. We marking him down, and we get in that bread. And then the main event here, we have, well, before the main event, we also have the Chase Sherman fight, Alexander Romanov. So in the most lopsided Vegas odd fights, Chase Sherman got cut. He came back. We talked about it last week. I won't re-break it down, but I'm taking Alexander Romanov. You know, I might put him in a parlay, but his odds are so bad it might not even pay off. Um, so um, keep that in mind. That'll be added to this card. I think it's in the main card, second fight in. But the main event of this fight night we have Rob Font, 34 years old, with a 19-5 record and the number 5 next to his name, taking on Marlon Cheeto Vera, 29 years old, with an 18-7-1 record and the number 8 next to his name. Now, this is a big fight for both fighters when it comes down to them getting a run at the title shot, right? You lose here, you go through a lot more backpedaling, and, and, and it's going to be a struggle pedaling forward especially, you know, Font right in his prime at 34. Cheeto is a little bit younger at 29. He could make his way back, but it's still not ideal. <laughs> Woo! Excuse me. Now, Font, 
I think is the best version of himself right now and is only getting better fight after fight. When we look at his style, he is an orthodox fighter. He's a brown belt in BJJ. He is coming off a loss against Jose Aldo. And he was on a four-fight winning streak before that. Eight of his 19 wins are via knockout. And Marlon, he's a black belt in BJJ. He is an Ultimate Fighter alum, Latin America Ultimate Fighter alum. He's on a two-fight winning streak. And seven of his 18 wins are via knockout. And eight of them via submission. So most of his fights end up in, in a finish fashion. Very, very close fight. You know, I feel like both fighters have really what really like rounded out their game the past few years but both ended up running into the buzzsaw the legend jose aldo so in this fight marlon has really improved his striking you know rob has too but he's more of a striker um i, I thought marlon looked really good although it was against a very late career you know frankie edgar um but i think he tries to go to his wrestling take rob down and I think in a five-round fight, that actually might favor Marlon because you could grind out Rob, right? Tire him out, outpoint him. Play, you know, don't play. Have to fight too aggressive in a, in a three-round fight. Uh, but Font is coming off back-to-back five-round fights, and Marlon hasn't fought in one yet. So, um, you know, that might, might, might actually benefit Rob. Um, when I look at picking this fight, again, these are a lot of close fights on this card. I do like Rob's striking ability here. I think he can win it. Um, parlays, though, I'd probably rather put this on the parlay than the other ones. So we'll just say we're fucking marking it down. We we, we make this shit official, and we get in that bread. Now, outside of the fights this weekend, next weekend is UFC 274. Some banger fucking fights. Prelims at 5 o'clock on ESPN. That's Pacific. Really good fights at the prelims, setting up before the main card, so make sure to tune in for the prelims. But let's talk fucking playoff basketball. Um, I love playoff basketball, but I hate when my jazz just look like fucking shit. But we'll talk about that later. Um, news around the league, more injuries to deal with. Joel Embiid suffered a torn ligament in his thumb. He played a game with it. He will get offseason surgery, but he's battling out through the playoffs. Uh, Scotty Barnes wins rookie of the year. I don't think that's a big surprise, especially when Mobley got hurt. I thought Mobley was on his way to win it, but he got hurt. So Scotty Barnes, rookie of the year. What a draft pick by the Raptors. I thought they should have got Jalen Suggs instead, but what the fuck do I know? Seems like they have a whole team of long, lanky guards and wings that uh, play good defense, play two ways. It's going to be interesting to see what they look like in the next coming uh, next few years. And then John Morant wins the most improved player. I don't think there's a big surprise here. He actually gave his award to Desmond Bain, who has also been very improved. That Grizzlies team is just improving together. Uh, but what a fucking season John Morant has had. And then Alex Caruso battling injuries. Alex, uh, Zach Levine and COVID protocols. So the Bulls might be without a few people. And then Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Fleet, Jimmy Butler out. A few people, some knee soreness, things like that. Uh, but it can make things interesting as the playoffs shake out. But let's recap, update us on what we had talked about since episode 79. Um, going into the Friday, we, we I, I filmed the podcast on Friday, put it out on Saturday. I was sick last week. My voice was 
recovering and you know going through that bullshit. Uh, but we had the Hawks beating the Miami Heat in Atlanta, game one in in Atlanta. And when you look at the you know who played in this game, it's like Atlanta won. Did Jimmy play? Did Lowry get out? No, everyone played. Lowry lacked the minutes. This is where he got hurt. Um, there was still no Clint Capella in this game. Badanovich was playing, and we had John Collins playing as well. But the Hawks barely got by 111 to 110. They came on strong, outscoring Miami by nine in the final quarter. Miami was led by Max Struess. What a fucking addition he's been. No, it wasn't an amazing, efficient game for him. He had 20 points on 13 shots. Was 5 of 10 from 3, which is, you know, very, you'll take 50%. Um, and then Jimmy Butler, 20, 10, and 8, but 20 points on 20 shots, 1 of 5 from 3. Uh, Tyler Hero did get 24 off the bench as well, 24 and 7, 7 rebounds. Uh, but that was on 22 shots, so that's, you know, not a very efficient day. 31% from 3 for Miami, 44% from the field. Uh, Atlanta was a lot more efficient. They were 37.5% from three, 51% from the field. Uh, but they had two, four, six players in double digits. And Trey Young led the way with 24 and eight on 14 shots. Ice Trey keeping the Hawks away from a sweep. Put those brooms back in the closet because I thought it was sweep city. That's what I talked about last week. And then the Bucks beating the Bulls by 30 to go up two to one after the Bulls had the surprising victory. Um, the leading scorer was Grayson Allen off the, off the bench. Obviously, Chris Middleton out for a while. Uh, Grayson Allison, uh, Grayson Allen with 22 and six on 12 shots. He was five of seven from three. Giannis and Bobby Portis, both with 18 points. Giannis had 18, seven and nine. Uh, Bobby Portis, 18 and 16, getting them boards, doing the dirty work. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of players on the bench with minutes because of the score. And Chicago was led by Vucevic, who had 19 points on 17 shots, 3 of 9 of 3. And yes, we're going to keep talking about his 3-point attempts as a big man is shooting about 10 a game. Uh, they shot 26.5% from 3. Pretty brutal line there. And the Suns getting a 2-1 lead. Um, you know, having to win game one in New Orleans after being 1-1. You don't want to lose uh, your lead in the series. Um, so 114-111 uh, by the Suns. DeAndre Ayton with 28-17 and 17 on 20 shots for a big man, not super efficient. Uh, but Chris Paul with 28-14. and 14. He was a brutal one of six from three. Not a lot of, lot of bench help besides JaVel McGee off the bench. But it was enough for victory. As the Pelicans are led by B.I., Brandon Ingram, who had 34-7, and a nice, efficient game on 19 shots. C.J. with 30 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists on 23 shots. But the Suns get the victory in, um, what is it, uh, Smoothie King Arena. Moving into Saturday. The Jazz have to win to get the series to 2-2 at home in Utah. You cannot go down 3-1. And they somehow find a way. I thought it was completely over. Um, but they fought. They really scrapped in. They fought. They gave it to Rudy at the end of the game to get the job done. Um, all five st starters for the Mavericks over double digits. Not a lot of bench help. Lu Luka's obviously back. He had 30 and 10 on 21 shots. Jalen Brunson with 21 on 18 shots. Obviously, his lines aren't as crazy dramatic because uh, Luka has the ball a lot and Brunson's not going to get that many takes. 
Um, they thought, shot 34% from three. Utah, a team that lives by the three, shot 28%, 40% from the field, and somehow still won the game. Utah was led by Donovan Mitchell at 23-7-6, but on 21 shots. He was 2 of 10 from three. And Jordan Clarkson, the one bright spot from the team throughout the series so far, 25 points on 16 shots, giving him giving the team some scoring options, a guy that can create his own shot off the dribble. We had three more games on Saturday. The Raptors surviving the 76ers in Toronto in the 6, 110-102. The Raptor or the Sixers were led by James Harden, who had 22-9. and nine. I feel like you haven't heard enough about him. Joel Embiid with 21-8. and eight. Toronto was led by Pascal Siakam, of course. 34-8 and eight on 19 shots. What a game, sir. And Gary Trent Jr. with 24 on 20 shots. He'd be putting it up, but the Raptors find the way to victory. The Celtics say, get your brooms ready. They win game one in Brooklyn, 109-103. The fact that Brooklyn can't score more than 103 points is pretty wild to me. And how about Jason Tatum? What a fucking player he's been become. You know, he's only 24 years old. The The Celtics last year I had predicted as like a two or three seed in the East. I thought they'd be a great team and there wasn't a ton of differences. No, they didn't have Al Horford. Yes, they had guys like Kemba and Evan Fournier. But you figure with the talent that they had, they would have been a lot better than I don't know where they finished six, seven last year. And we're just a total shit, shit of a team. And at the start of the year, this year they were there and then they decided to commit defensively. One thing the jazz I think are struggling with right now. And, um, Jason Tatum's found out, not found out. He's just developed the ability to be a facilitator, not a shot maker. The reason I've been such an anti Jason Tatum guy is on 39 shots. or He, he put up 39 points on 29 shots. Not the most efficient game. It is playoff basketball, but typically his lines would be 39 shot, 39 points on 33 shots or something like that. And one or two assists. So six assists, six steals. He's playing defensively. He's long and lanky, 39 points, good size for his position. That's been the difference maker. Um, I've always enjoyed Jalen Brown. I thought if I were a Celtics organization a year or two ago, I'd pick Jalen over Tatum. I think that is changing a little bit. No offense to Jason Jalen Brown. But Tatum's just leveling up. Um, Brown did have a nice 23 points on 16 shots. Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, there are two stars you would think would be putting up 60 a night. Well, KD only put up 16. He did have eight rebounds, eight assists, but on 11 shots. If you're KD, you can't be shooting 11 shots going down 3-0. Yeah, it's just a shocker. Uh, Kyrie had 26 and 8 on 19 shots. Uh, I don't know. It just... It doesn't make sense. Did I expect the Nets to win this series? No, but I thought they would fight and make this very interesting. But props to Tatum and the Celtics. They are up 3-0. And then the nightcap on Saturday was the Timberwolves beating the Grizzlies in Minnesota to tie the series 2-2. Can you believe it? I can't. Well, Memphis was led by Desmond motherfucking Bain. 34 points, 8 of 12 from 3, and this was on 18 shots. That's a line if I've ever seen one. Uh, Dylan Brooks with 24 as well. Minnesota was led by Cat, who had 33 and 14. He finally showed up to the party in the playoffs, um, and it was an efficient 33 on 17 shots, 3 of 5 from 3. They need a lot more of that from their star. Anthony Edwards with 24 points on 14 shots, 4 of 8 from 3. 
What a game by the Timberwolves. They shot 50% from three. The Grizzlies shot 46.9% from three. And uh, yeah, I mean, what a shocker of a series that has been so far. Moving in on Sunday, we had the Bucks beating the Bulls 119.95 to go up 3-1 in the series. This was all the Greek freak. Giannis, 32-17-7 on 22 shots. Uh, Drew Holiday with a nice 26-7, but on 20, 21 shots. Grayson Allen still shooting the lights out on the bench. He had 27 points, shooting 6-7 of seven from 3. The Bucks shot 51% from the 3-point line. Not so efficient for the Bulls. They shot 25% from the three-point line. They were led by DeMar DeRozan with 23 points, 0 of 5 from three on 20 shots. Patrick Williams, 20 and 10 on 13 shots. Zach Levine, 24 and 13 on 18 shots. Um, tough, tough go for the Bulls, but did you expect them to be able to manage the deep bucks even without Middleton? I did not. The Nuggets live. They beat the Warriors in the Mile High City 126 to 121. And if you think the uh, Nuggets had a game plan to win, what was it? Oh, yeah. Nikola Jokic, 37, 8, and 6 on 21 shots. He was 3 of 5 from 3. Uh, Monty Morris with 24, and Aaron Gordon with 21 as well. Um, the Warriors only shot 35% from 3. Klay Thompson did have 32 points. He was 7-11 from 3. Um, Jordan Poole was only 1-5 of five from 3 for 11 shots. Steph Curry, 3-11 of 11 from 3, but he had 33 points on 23 shots. It wasn't enough. The Nuggets live. And probably the most interesting of them all, the Pelicans winning in Smoothie King to make the series 2-2. Of course, there's no, there's no Devin Booker, but they won by 15, 118 to 103. The Suns were led by DeAndre Ayton, who had 23 and 8. Efficient line for the big man. Chris Paul only had four points, two of eight from the field, 0 of three from three. He did put in 11 dimes. And for the Pelicans, it was their young stars, B.I. with 30 points on 23 shots. Uh, how about Jonas Valenciunas? It's not Valenciunas. Valenciunas. I always want to say Valenciunas because it's what it looks like. But Valenciunas. Uh, with 26 and 15, what an addition that was upgrading from Steven Adams. I can't believe the Grizz were, you know, I'm sure it was money or whatever. got rid of him, but uh, that man can really ball. And the Pellies are tied 2-2. Could you imagine if the Pelicans won? There's going to be something crazy happening, right? What we're about to find out with all that home court advantage getting tossed up. So starting Monday, the Jazz are in Dallas. I'm thinking, all right, let's come out strong. Since the fucking tip of the ball, they actually had really good looks the first quarter. They could not get anything to drop, and Dallas just went on cruise control. I actually stopped watching the game at half because I was fucking pissed. 102-77 Mavericks. This is our last chance. We're about to blow it up, ladies and gents. Um, but the only player worth mentioning for Utah, Jordan Clarkson, 20 points off the bench. It was on 15 shots. He was 0-4 from 3. Utah shot 10% from three. I have this screenshot saved in my phone to talk about. The Jazz shot three of 30, 10%, on threes in game five. That is the worst three-point percentage in NBA postseason history by a team to attempt at least 25 threes. It's also the worst three-point field goal percentage in Jazz history with a minimum of 23 point 
attempts in a game. Ugh. Well, Rudy had 17 and 11. Um, Donovan got hurt late at the game, but they said it's just looking like bruising, nothing too crazy. But hamstrings for a player, that's not something you want to hear. Um, now it's you got to win out. Let's see what they got, see what their life is. They play Thursday in Utah. Regardless, Dallas was led by Luka, 33-13 and 13 on 22 shots. Not the most efficient game from the Mavs either, but they didn't need to be. And Jalen Brunson with 24 on 20. The Mavericks are up 3-2. to two. Shit just got real. Boston pulls out their brooms, are up the entire game. Brooklyn battles back a little late. KD had 39 and 9, 39, 9 and 7 on 31 shots, 3 of 11 from 3. Kyrie Irving only 20 points in a 3-0 game. And Seth Curry, 23 points, 5 of 9 from 3. He stepped up. Boston was led by Tatum, 29 points. Uh, Marcus Smart with a nice 20 and 11. Jalen Brown with 22 on 20 shots. He's been not very efficient. 0 of 5 from 3. <sighs> Um, I'm not a Nets fan by any means, but, uh, I just expected these guys to just, you know, put up godly like numbers and it didn't happen. I think the season's been lost. The Harden drama, the COVID drama, the Kyrie drama, just a lot of drama to handle. Uh, teams that don't have drama usually succeed. And I think that's why the Mavericks are beating my Utah jazz. Um, as I wanted to deny all the drama for years, something's going on because the jazz are not playing like they should. Hence me drinking wine on a Tuesday at 548. Uh, the Raptors beating the Sixers 103-88. to This series is now 3-2. Um, you know, Joel's battling a thumb injury. Fred Van Fleet didn't play. The Raptors were still able to win by 20. Pretty wild shit, honestly. Uh, Siakam with 23-10-7. Not very efficient with 17 shots. They only shot 25% from three. Philly only shot 27% from three, but 38% from the field. They had all five starters in double digits. Joel Embiid with 20 and 11 on 15 shots. 0 of 4 from three to lead the way. Crazy, crazy stuff as the Raptors making things interesting a little bit. So today, Tuesday, we have the Heat beating the Hawks into the third. No, um... Bogdanovich off the bench for Atlanta. No Jimmy Buckets. No Kyle Lowry. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. The Timberwolves are beating the Grizz at half. I'm going to have to tune into that after this. That would be wild if they went up 3-2 to two in Memphis. Shit's, you know, This playoffs are crazy. Lots of injuries. Um, we also have Pelican Suns in a 2-2 matchup in Phoenix tonight. That's a huge game. What just happened to him? My Wi-Fi here. Um, going into Wednesday, we only have two games. Bucks, Bulls, I assume the Bucks will finish. Warriors at home against the Nuggets, I assume the Warriors will finish. And then Thursday, Jazz surviving at home. Raptors surviving at home. Um, potential um, interesting matchup with Pelly's Suns. I would assume the Heat will have it done, but without Jimmy Butler today, we'll see. So we're getting close to the end of the first round. But who would have ever thought we would be in these situations with the Pelicans, maybe even um, the Mavericks beating the Jazz. You know, maybe I'm delusional as a Jazz fan, but I, I thought there would be more life there. And who knows what's going to happen with the Philly Raptors series. 
And we also have interesting things with the Timberwolves going down. I said it many a times. It's been the past couple of years, really. But it's so wide open. It makes things so much fun. Can't wait. Can't wait. And then we got Supercross. We are in week 15 of 17. This weekend, Saturday, week 16 of 17 in the Mile High City in the beautiful Denver, Colorado. And in the 250 class, they have their champion for the East, Jet Lawrence, able to lock in the season championship. I mean, we knew it was coming, uh, but he officially is the champion. And, uh, you know, in this race, he started in eighth, one spot behind Austin Forkner. You would assume he'd leap his way to the front. He could not get ahead of Forkner, but he did find himself in the two spot on the podium. So in the 250, we had Forkner one, Jet Lawrence second, Pierce Brown third. So the season standings, Jet Lawrence with the ship at 192. RJ Hampshire at 139 and second. He's 11 points with three or two races to go ahead of Pierce Brown, who has 128. And he's six points ahead of Mitchell Oldenburg in fourth place. So those guys are still racing for some things. And obviously, week 17 is an East-West showdown, so shit will get real for sure. In the 450, Cooper Cup getting the whole shot. Anderson, though, taking the show, delaying Eli Tomac celebration. We could not have the 450 champion, um, you know, popping bottles. Muscan and Sexton racing very well of late. I'm very impressed. Um, I always expected Muscan to be a, a podium or nothing type guy. He's battled a lot of stuff through the years, but a very good second half. And we all know the ability of the young Chase Sexton team Honda on a motherfucking roll. So Anderson first, Sexton second, Muscan third. Uh, Malcolm Stewart and Barsha are battling in points. Stewart gets fourth here, Barsha fifth. Cooper Webb sixth, Eli Tomac with a seventh place finish. So our point standings, Tomac first, 341. Anderson second, 298. Barsha third, 275. He's three points ahead of Stewart, who's in fourth at 272. And six points ahead of Muscan, who's really gained a lot of traction this last ha latter half of the season. He's only six back at 266. Sexton in sixth at 250. Six points ahead of Cooper Webb in seventh at 244. I got my Angels gear on. I am so excited the Angels are starting the season well. But I just love me some baseball. Got to go to my first Mariners game for a birthday party on Friday. Um, you know, baseball all the time, almost every day, especially with the lockout. A lot of these extra days, there's been makeup games. There's double headers. Um, I just, I just love me some baseball. And, you know, my team might actually have a chance. But they might be like the Jazz and get me hyped up just to fucking smash them from me. Regardless, John means tough news for Orioles fans getting Tommy John, but maybe it's good news because a lot of these guys need Tommy John eventually, so he gets it out of the way when you weren't a winning team. Miguel motherfucking Cabrera getting 3,000 hits. What an accomplishment. I got to see in person in Safeco. Well, maybe it was, no, it was T-Mobile at the time. At T-Mobile Park, seeing Albert Pujols hit 3,000 for the Angels. Uh, a great moment, and what a accolade for Miggy. He is one of the few with 3,000 hits and 300 homers. I think there's only seven of them. Um, but what a fucking player Miguel Cabrera has been. This past weekend, we had some decent series. 
Uh, we had the Angel or the Yankees and the Cleveland Guardians battle it out. On Friday, the Yankees won four to one. They won five to four on Saturday, and then ten to two on Sunday. They got the sweep, but a couple close games in there. Huge NL battle. The Brewers eight and six at the time. The Phillies six and eight. They are in Philly. The Phillies win game one, four to two. On Saturday, they lose five to three. And on Sunday, on Sunday night baseball, they get shut out one to zero. The Brewers take a two one series victory over the rival Phillies, keep them below them in the standings. And the AL East, the Red Sox and Rays uh, going down to Florida, battling it out. The Red Sox win game one, four to three. They win, uh, lose game two, three to two in extra innings. And on Sunday, they lose five to two. The Rays win two out of three, beat the Red Sox in the um, weekend series. And in the standings, they stay ahead of the Red Sox by two. We have the Blue Jays at 11 and six, the Yankees 10 and six, Rays nine and seven, Red Sox seven and 10. I think I predicted the Red Sox, this division to be in that order actually. So, hey, it's early, very, very early in a long season, but uh, going the way I thought. We had Marlins Braves in Atlanta. The Braves went 3-0 on Friday. Um, on Saturday, they lose nine to seven Marlins putting up nine runs. Sheesh. And then the Marlins win five to four. Luzardo has been hot. The Marlins win two out of three in Atlanta. Huge for them. Let's look at the NL East here. We have Mets 13 and five Marlins seven and eight Braves seven and 10 Phillies seven and 10 national six and 12. We talked about the NL East all season last year. We'll be talking about it. That and the AL East most of the season this year, I assume. Six and seven White Sox versus six and eight Phillies this past weekend. The Twins won two to one on Friday. On Saturday, they win nine to two. Dang. And on Sunday, they win six to four. They sweep the White Sox. Sheesh. I mean, the White Sox lost Eloy. Um, they've had a ton of injuries, but they're still very deep team. Very impressive series win by the Twins as they look to get back to 500. As it stands today, the Twins are leading the AL Central 8-8. Eight and eight. The Guardians are 7-9, White Sox 6-9, Tigers 6-9. Always the past, for quite a while, wish the Angels were in the AL Central. It's like the Steelers being in the AFC, uh, AFC East, right? Not even a thing. I'm trying to think football now. AFC East. Yep. The Patriots division. That's why the Patriots always got a bloated fucking record. Anyways, AL, big, big, big series. Nine and five Blue Jays, six and seven Strohs. The Blue Jays win four and three on Friday. Moving to Saturday. The Blue Jays, three and two, one run games. Holy cow. And then on Sunday, 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 Sunday. The Astros avoid the sweep 8-7 in extras, but big series win by the Blue Jays. They're looking stronger than ever. And then to wrap up last weekend, we had Dodgers, Padres, 10-3 Dodgers, 9-6 Padres. Dodgers smoke them 6-1 on Friday. 
on Saturday. The Padres get a victory in extras, 3-2. to two. Nice little home win. And then on Sunday, Dodgers smoke them 10 to 2. Dodgers win two of three. When we look at the standings there, Dodgers 12 and 4, Giants 12 and 5, Rockies 10 and 6, Padres 10 and 7. Uh, lots of big wins there in the NL West. So let's tune into this weekend. What do we got coming up this weekend? Well, I'm an Angels fan, so obviously I care about this. We have Angels, White Sox. I know the White Sox went through a rough patch this past week. Uh, are dealing with injuries, but it's still a very, very tough team. Uh, they'll start with Noah Syndergaard on the mound this Friday in Chi-Town. We have Marlins Mariners in Florida. Um, that's going to be just a good battle. The Marlins have been looking scrappy of late, a team that I, I started looking into last year, really liking them this year. I think they're in a tough division and a couple years away, but they have lots of fun talent on that team, same as the Mariners. Mariners already had 10 wins. We have Blue Jays Astros again, this time in Toronto. That'll be fun. Uh, Tampa Bay hosting the Twins, a fun AL battle. NL East action. The Phillies are needing to get things going in the wrong type of fashion. They start with Aaron Nola on the mound on Friday versus Tyler Miguel, who's been killing. He's 3-0. Nola is 1-2 with the 3-7-4 ERA this early. The Phillies are 7-10. The Mets 13-5. I thought the Phillies would have a... Pretty solid season. I thought the Mets would be overrated, but it's early, early, early. Also, we have this weekend. That's really it. A lot of lopsided series. So, hey, things are starting to, you know, get going a little bit. My Angels are 7-3 and three in their last 10. Uh, they play here in a half hour, so I am fired up. Fired up. Not a huge he lot of headlines outside of that. So in the NFL, we are going to just dive into some mock drafts. I have a paid ESPN Plus subscription. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you have to have the ESPN Plus to get the Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay mock draft that happened April 19th. And we are reviewing the Athletics April 22nd mock draft that the staff did together. So drafts on Thursday. I can't fucking wait. As a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I am just praying Kenny Pickett, Kenny Pickett. A lot of people say there's not a lot of first-round talent in the NFL this year when it comes to quarterbacks. But, you know, a team will make a move. The Eagles or the Seahawks will draft a quarterback early, throw everyone off, and there will probably be four quarterbacks off the board. So, McShay and ESPN and Kuyper have the Jags taking Aiden Hutchinson first round or first pick, and, and the Athletic has them taking Ikeem Aquanu, the offensive tackle out of North Carolina State. Obviously, in the press, we've heard a lot about Hutchinson. You know, they do need a little bit of everything. They need an edge, a tight end, a, a center, a corner, a wide receiver. Um, but to me, the most important thing is to keep your young quarterback upright. So I like the Athletic's perspective of taking a lineman. I know everyone's so up and up on Aiden Hutchinson. But I like the athletics idea here, um, and it seems like Aquanu is the top guy to take. But can you go wrong with Hutchinson? Probably not. Typical white-collar edge rusher, Big Ten, you got to love it. So the athletic has the Lions taking Aiden Hutchinson, which they need an edge guy, so it's like, if he does slide, I want to be surprised. 
I could also see the Lions taking Kayvon Thibodeau um, just because it's a Lion thing to do. And this was the guy that was projected top coming into the season. The Kuiper McShay mock draft has them taking Trayvon Walker, the DN out of Georgia. This guy's a fucking animal. All these guys are animals. If you need a DN, you need a big body. You can't really go wrong. Um, You know, if I'm going with the athletic with the lineman idea, though, I would assume the Lions take Hutchinson. Three, the athletic has the Texans taking Neil, Evan Neal. Um, The ESPN one has them taking Kayvon Thibodeau. Um, I mean, does anyone know what's going on in Houston? Because I sure in the hell don't. Um, Assumptively, I feel like they would be more inclined to take Thibodeau because that's just a a Texan thing to do. But it's hard for me to provide insight on what I think the Texans are doing because it's the fucking Texans. And then the Athletic at four has them taking Ahmad Sauce Gardner. So does ESPN. It seems like that's almost on all big-time mock drafts across the board, the thing that's happening. Um, they really do need a corner. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. But what if Thibodeau or Aiden Hutchinson slips? Potentially, that might be the move for them as well. So the Athletic at five has Kayvon Thibodeau to the Giants. ESPN has Akeem Aquanu. So... I would assume that if he's there, they would take him. But, you know, in the athletics case, he's not. Uh, so they take an edge rusher. I, you know, I, I think they just have to take the best player on the board. So at this point, I would think Thibodeau uh, as long as um, Aquanu is, is not available. Six, the ESPN um, Kuiper McShay has the Panthers taking Malik Willis. The athletic has them taking Charles Cross. I do think they'll go quarterback. This is the type of thing that I'm talking about. The Panthers will be like, ah, fuck. You know, do we roll Sam Darnold? Do we try to draft a guy? Like, we're paying five quarterbacks. What the fuck do we do? And I think they just get lost and draft a quarterback. Um, And uh, Malik Willis has got the high ceiling. Would not be a guy that I would want right at the gates, but they could start Sam Darnold, maybe give him some time, maybe kind of do what uh, the 49ers did with Trey Lance. So I do see the Panthers taking Malik Willis. I'm on the ESPN side here. Next up, we got the Giants. Well, actually, no. Yeah, the Giants, uh, which was a trade. They have them taking Trevor Pennington, the tackle from Northern Iowa, on the Athletic. On ESPN, they have them taking Jermaine Johnson, the second. I don't know a ton about Jermaine Johnson. I didn't watch a lot of Florida State. I know that Trevor Penning's the real deal. So, again, if they can't take Aquanu earlier, I would assume that they would take the best uh, lineman available, which could be Trevor Penning. If not, I'm assuming they're going to go defense, so the Jermaine Johnson pick makes sense to me. ESPN has the Falcons at eight, taking Garrett Wilson. Uh, So does the Athletic. They say Garrett Wilson is the number one receiver off the board. I have a feeling that's not going to happen. I have a feeling it's going to be like the CeeDee Lamb year. I thought CeeDee Lamb was clearly the best receiver on the board, and they ended up taking freaking... um, Henry Ruggs. So I think the Falcons are going to shake some shit up here. I wouldn't even be shocked if it was a quarterback. Um, I think this is where mock drafts just are going to be completely off. At nine, the athletic has the Seahawks taking Willis. Um, ESPN has them taking Evan Neal. Um, Again, I think that the Panthers do take Willis. So then maybe the Seahawks even draft a quarterback as well. If they could get Evan Neal, I think that'd be fantastic for them. 
but I'm assuming that they're going to go quarterback because um, the, the Panthers are going to set the floodgates open and ruin my Steelers opportunity. 10, the Jets with Drake London, um, according to The Athletic. And for ESPN, they have Drake London as well. I do think that's a clear fit. Um, maybe Drake London gets taken first instead of Garrett, so then they get Garrett. Either way, the best receiver on the board, which I think is like the common draft board rankings, is who they will take. 11, the Athletic has Washington taking Kenny Pickett. Um, the athletic or the ESPN has him taking Kyle Hamilton, the safety of Notre Dame. That would be savage to take him that early. In my opinion, I don't see that happening. I do see them taking a quarterback. I'm expecting four or five off the board just because, you know, these quarterback needy teams and we're talking Washington, Carolina and Seattle right now. So yeah, uh, 12, both of them have Derek Stingley Jr. to the Vikings. I completely agree with that. I think that's a match made in heaven. Uh, it would be a huge win for Minnesota. Pick 13, they have the Texans taking on Trayvon Walker, edge rusher from Georgia. Um, and the ESPN, they have them taking Charles Cross from, from um, Mississippi State, the tackle. Again, depending on how their earlier pick goes, I wouldn't be surprised with the trade back here from Houston as well to try to get some more picks. That's what I would do, but you never know. Pick 14, they have in here the Ravens taking Jermaine Johnson because he hasn't been taken in the Athletics version. And in the ESPN version, they have him with Trent McDuffie, corner out of Washington. They do like their corners. They have a couple Washington corners. Uh, so that does not surprise me. Uh, but maybe Jermaine Johnson is their guy if he isn't already taken like he is in ESPN. I do expect it to be defense. The, the Ravens draft defense, and they have defensive needs, D-tackle, corner, and edge uh, potential as well. Going into 15, they have the Eagles taking Jamison Williams. In ESPN, in the athletic, they have them taking Jordan Davis, D-tackle of Georgia. I would assume they go receiver, uh, but maybe because it's a receiver deep class, they don't. But it, I think it's going to play a, a lot of what those other teams do at receiver. Um, so I'm not surprised with either. Jordan Davis is a stud. I would hope he slips to the Steelers. That probably won't happen. So either way, it's a win-win for Philly. I, I like those options. Same with the, the, the Saints in 16. Athletic has what Jamison Williams. The Saints on ESPN have Trevor Pennington, uh, who is already taking in the Athletics version. So um, I, I think there are just so many needs here. I mean... What's the best player? That's what the Saints should be thinking. 17, they have the Chargers taking Jordan Davis on the ESPN side and Chris Olavi um, on the athletic side. I do think that they go offensive lineman or defensive lineman, one of the lineman positions, um, but it's going to depend on what's taken thus far. I think if it is ESPN's version of Jordan Davis, they would be fucking pumped. Could you imagine... Jordan Davis with that D line, you know, they have Sebastian Joseph day and Austin Johnson. Um, but, uh, yeah, that would be savage. And I, I would agree with, uh, the ESPN's version there. Pick 18. They have the Eagles on ESPN taking Daxon Hill safety corner hybrid out of Michigan on, um, the athletic. They have them taking Kyle Hamilton. I could see them taking secondary picks here. I could also see them trading this back. 19, back to the Saints. They have Chris Olave on ESPN and Matt Coral on Ole Miss. Um, again, 
I think that this is going to be a quarterback move because all the other teams are sporadically taking quarterbacks. They feel left out, so I would not be surprised. 20 on ESPN, they have Kenny Pickett to the Steelers. On The Athletic, they have Desmond Ritter. Um, I would hope that they don't take Desmond Ritter in the first round. I would hope that would be a potential second round, maybe even trade up in the second round. Um, if, if we can get Kenny Pickett in the first round, that is my dream situation. Um, I do think it will be Malik or Pickett if they're available at 20. If neither of them are, I'm assuming they'll go defensive line. Especially with the uncertainty of Stephon Tuitt. Moving to 21, Devin Lloyd of Utah to the Patriots. They have N'Kobe Dean. Um, I would assume they go N'Kobe just because he's a, a bigger conference type dude. Uh, but they do need a, a linebacker and they need one bad. So that makes a lot of sense. 22, the Athletic has the Packers taking Traylon Burks. ESPN has them taking Christian Watson. If they did trade Christian Watson, that would be wild in my opinion. Traylon Burks is the more proven version of Watson in my opinion. So I like that pick a lot more, but they should be getting receiver. If they don't, Aaron Rodgers might sue them or demand a trade or sit out or who knows what the fuck would happen. ESPN has the Cardinals taking Traylon Burks because he wasn't taken. Um, in uh, the athletics version, they have him taking George Karloftis, the edge rusher out of Purdue. I do see them picking a receiver no matter what's available as there's so many receivers in this draft class. Going to 24 of them, Cowboys. On Athletic, they have Kenyon Green, lineman out of Texas A&M. Uh, ESPN has them taking Arnold Bacchetti, DN linebacker hybrid from Penn State. Um, I would assume that they go lineman. I like the Athletic's version on that one. Um, you got to keep your boy upright and their line is getting old. Moving on to Buffalo, Athletic has them taking Trent McDuffie out of Washington. ESPN has them taking Andrew Booth out of Clemson. Both corners, they traded Levi Wallace. Um, their stud is coming back from an injury, so you know time. I have no idea what his timeline is, but I assume they do draft a you know one of the better corners available round one. The Titans, Zion Johnson, lineman out of Boston College from both sides. Um, that makes sense to me. They do need linemen. You know, I'm not opposed to that. 27, Tampa with Devontae Wyatt, D-tackle out of Georgia. I hope to God that's not the case, but that's the uh, ESPN's thought process as well. I hope he gets taken ahead of time so that Tampa can't get them. You know, they have Vita Vea. Uh, they have Ndamukong and Sue, but those guys are older. Vita just coming off injury, so it makes a lot of sense. Please let him be taken beforehand. 28, the Packers with Travis Jones, D-tackle out of Connecticut on The Athletic. Um, they have a DN out of Purdue, George Karlaftis on ESPN. Um, I do assume that because they would be taking a receiver first pick, they would take a defender second pick, so that does make a lot of sense as they need D-line and edge rusher, so someone in the front seven on the defense. 29, they have the Chiefs taking Sky Moore out of Western uh, Michigan, and on ESPN they have them taking Jahan Dotson. I like the fit of Jahan Dotson more personally, and I think that they do go receiver here. So, you know, both these mock drafts taking what I'm thinking. And then at 30, they have the Chiefs with um, David Ojabo from Michigan, outside linebacker. And here they have Arnold Abetke, edge rusher from Penn State, which was already taken on the ESPN version. 
They need to shore up that defense somewhere. It could potentially be in the later half or a corner as well. Just depends what happens in the earlier parts of the draft. Then 31, they have the Bengals with Tyler Linderbaum, center out of Iowa, and Devin Lloyd, inside linebacker on ESPN's version. If they could get Tyler Linderbaum, if he's still available, that would be fucking clutch for the, the Bengals, and that line would be, holy shit, a complete difference to what that was last year. That'd be watch out AFC North. Devin Lloyd, um, maybe, but I could see him slipping, so I, I, I like the idea of them taking a lineman. And then lastly, the Lions taking Desmond Ritter on ESPN and N'Kobe Dean, Georgia. I would assume they go quarterback here as well. Like I said, I think everyone's going to do panic attacks. I think there might be some big-time trades in this year's draft, and I wouldn't be shocked if there was a big player traded, a.k.a. DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel, someone of that stature. Come draft night. It's Tuesday night. This is coming out Wednesday. We got the draft Thursday. Football is coming back. Football is coming back. We got that fight action. We got that baseball action. And we got the big 274 card coming up next Saturday. And lastly, there is one thing I wanted to bring up. In the NCAA, um, President Emmert stepping down. He announced his mutual agreement to step down June of 2023. So that's big news as the NCAA is making changes. We'll have a new face of the NCAA. But again, it is April. Summertime's here. I need to get my shit together. I need to lose some weight, get in the best shape of my life. I need field supplements. I got that shit on my fridge. But you guys need field supplements. If you're buying supplements, skip the big stores. Go to fieldsupplements.com. Do it right now. Check it out. Save some money. High quality products. Helping small business. Let's help small businesses. That's what it's all about. We out here. Episode 80, though. Cranking. Going. Can't wait to see what's in the future. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for, for checking things out. Appreciate the feedback. Give me some DMs. Give me some comments. Keep the, the, the creative juices a-flowing. We'll see you guys next week.